Hello and welcome to Creative Callings. We are Collage, a team of creatives in London, and here you're listening to our refreshing conversations and tips to inspire your creative practice. In this episode, we discuss our direction in movies going behind the scenes of some of the most exquisite pieces of filmmaking in recent years. Our guest today is... Hello, Niall. How are you doing? Oh, hi, Timo. Um, I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> our director, Niall Moroni, has supervised our departments on major international feature films, including critically acclaimed Atonement and multi-award winning 1917. In this in-depth conversation with Niall, he talks about his craft and the inner workings of the film industry, while giving us precious tips on how to break into it. But first, we break the ice, challenging our audience with a quiz to find out more about Niall before we meet him on Zoom. What was Helen Mirren's character name in Prime Suspect? Oh. <laughs> Whoa, very fast. There's a lot of Prime Suspect fans here. Niall Moroni worked on season six. Jane Tennyson. How old was Joe Wright when Atonement came out? He was the youngest ever director opening can at 35. Well done. He was in 83. And now it's counting two, double the number of points you get. Who's directing the new Dune? Oh, <laughs> Yes, it is Denis Villeneuve. Niall was interviewed. He was asked to do the art direction for this movie, but he couldn't. What trick did they use in Atonement to get that unique visual style? People hesitate a little bit more. This is not as easy. That's why it counts double. Well done. Oh my God, everybody knew this one. How long was the rehearsal for the actors on another movie that Niall was the art director for? Yeah, a lot. Usually now in films, they complain that they don't have any time to rehearse. But in this case, because of the way it was shot, they needed many months. Who directed Sherlock Holmes? Guy Ritchie. <laughs> we need to silence the microphone there. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but well done, yes. Hello, everybody. Hello, Niall. To open it up, what excites you about what's coming next in your projects? Is there anything you can share that is not too secret? Yeah, I have to be, I have to be a little bit careful about this just because we do sign these disclaimers. And um, we were a week out from filming on The Little Mermaid, so it was quite an intense time. It's often the busiest period is the couple of weeks before filming when we all had to shut down. Well, we all started working from home, but it was effectively everything was put on hold. And then the film went into hiatus. So all the sets are currently standing Pinewood ready to shoot on or nearly ready to shoot on and um, yeah we'd literally drop sort of drop tools and ready to pick up whenever we can which we're trying to get back into working out as we were talking before everyone came in about you know what what the working practices would be in the new new world we're currently in so it's going to be busy it's going to be a busy time but I think rather than being a week out from filming we're going to need a run-up I think they're talking about having maybe nearly eight weeks of prep time to get us back to where we were. And then everything's just gonna be slower. So it's gonna be interesting to see how that all pans out really with the new systems. When I visited you on location, you know, like Sherlock Holmes, the bridge, when they will be the entire bridge, you know, all the people, they have to be, as you say, on top of each other working. Everything is done in a rush. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it, because you've got lots of different departments as well. And, and I know some of the proposals coming out from the unions and, and whatnot are saying, OK, only one department can do the work at any one time. But we have never worked like that. So we've always worked in parallel, having other people in and working around us. And if they do that, that's just it, it's just slow, going to slow everything down. And time is money. You know, it's great if you can be just in, in working by yourself. That's fine. But it, it just means it's going to take so much longer to do. And it'll cost the productions will cost so much more. So it'll have a knock on effect because it's a business at the end of the day. You know, it revolves around the budget and the time frame and the schedule. And then the shooting schedule, what I think will possibly double because having, you know, when they're shooting, they've got maybe two actors on a set, but you've got, you know, maybe 75 people all, all around just outside the edges of the screen already to go in and, and adjust lights and you know refill coffee cups and touch up makeup and hair and how that's all going to work is going to be interesting going to be makeup people in full ppe dealing with one actor alone with single brushes and makeup kit for each actor or possibly let's go back in time a little bit like your supervising art director is that usually how they talk that's about correct yeah, yeah, yeah. That's- how far is that from where you were thinking you would be when you were doing your postgrad, your masters, or after you studied, you were you studied at engineering, right? Yeah, I, well, I did. I did a, a degree in engineering after school, and then soon realized that probably wasn't what I really wanted to do. And I always had a hankering for design, so I wanted, I ended up coming here to the Royal College of Art to do product design for engineering graduates. It was a master's in in design, and that's when I met people in the film department. Our friend JP, for instance, and I started working on films, the student films that they were doing at the time. I personally never had a career path that ended, was to end up here at the time. You know, it's like many people in life, you sort of find a path as you go along. Uh, in fact, I, for many years, I was even in the industry and didn't realize there was a job title, which was supervising art director. <laughs> <laughs> because all the projects I worked on originally, I was the art director and there was only one art director. And I hadn't even conceived of a bigger project where there were multiple art directors and somebody would need to supervise them. So... So, you know, it's a learning experience. Everything's a learning experience. You learn along the way. And I, I learned on the job, really. It's amazing what the networking, the hanging out with friends that are doing things that are interesting. Those are the ones that lead you more than very clear, clairvoyant, I'm going to become a doctor. Yeah, well, you know, and there are people who, who have that from the outset and they, they do know what they want to do and they study specific things. And, and that's one way of doing it. But mine was a, a slightly circuitous And now when I was revisiting your work and looking at the films you've done, there's a moment in 2006, you know, right before Atonement, where you went from quite a smaller TV production. I think you had already done Prime Suspect, which is not a small TV production at all. But you know what I mean? Like suddenly things look stratospheric. What do you think happened 2006, 2007 when Atonement came that it all took Well, yeah, what what happened was I'd done a a few, sort of in the 90s, I did a few low-budget British feature films and stuff like that. And then when I came back after the time that we met uh, in New York, I ended up getting involved with some TV productions and I did TV drama for a number of years, which actually proved to be a great training ground because the TV budgets, although they're a lot bigger now, but back then they weren't very big at all. But the expectation was that you'd still, what you put onto the screen had to be as good as anything else was going. So, and the teams were a lot smaller. So it meant that there was a great training ground because there were four of you instead of 24 of you and you still had to do all the work. So you learned an awful lot. But then it got to the point where I just got a little bit bored because it was a sort of similar jobs all the time. And then I got, I got a shot at getting involved with the atonement and the film industry is different 
different in some ways from the TV industry, but in lots of ways it's the same. But there's a little bit of a snobbery sometimes of people who work in the film industry about people who work in TV. And luckily I met with the designer of Vuitton, who was Sarah Greenwood, who came up through the BBC. And actually she also recognised what I'd experienced in that TV is a fantastic training ground for the design team because you've got to think out of the, outside the box, you've got to come up with far greater creative solutions to things because you don't necessarily have the money or the team to do it. So she sort of hired me on the spot as an art director and I'd be forever in her debt for it because jumping onto something like Atonement, suddenly it was a jump in scale and creatively it was just much more interesting to me and it rejuvenated my interest in the industry and my job just because it wasn't trotting out the same old sets all the time like a, you know, another police drama, another, you know, the, it, so it, it felt like TV at the time was a little bit mundane whereas now tv is sort of really quite interesting you know the format's interesting and you can do a lot more with it now so that was the the change you're seeing is, is getting into the film industry and seeing what can be achieved with the resources when the resources are there joe wright was very young but sarah was more experienced and from atonement to anna karenina i love what she was coming up with was it like an amazing learning experience to work under somebody like that or was it the whole team what it was, well, it was both really. I mean, I'd, I'd worked on something called Arabian Nights back in 99, which at the time was the biggest TV production ever made. It was Hallmark Productions, Hallmark made the greeting cards, and they were doing a lot of sort of fairy tales and stuff at the time. Like two-part things were put out over Easter weekend and that sort of thing. So it was television, but it was big production-scale television. So I'd sort of seen stuff at that level before, but I just didn't know how to break into it in the film way. So, But working with Sarah, who's amazing, gave me a different insight into how the art department could be as well. It, it was both, really. It was seeing what the film world could allow people to do. And that's all departments, not just the design department, and working alongside each other. And TV, because a lot smaller it was it was a shorter time frames so you never really got you sort of got thrown together with people and you sort of went you moved on the, you worked on the same obviously with the same goal in mind but you didn't have as much time to build up ideas and creative ideas and, and put them into the visual whether it be costume or makeup or you know whatever it, it became a little bit more just trying to get something ready for the filming you know with projects like atonement and well all the projects working with sarah there was always creative thinking around the story and the script and the ideas and visuals in conversations with the dop and you know even sitting around and being there when when joe for instance and they were discussing that beach scene at the end and how it was going to be approached and we built a model and, and just being part of those meetings and, and creative discussions was fascinating really yeah you're lucky i think to answer your question, luck played a huge part in it. I mean, it, you know, it just so happened that I got hooked up with one of the most creative designers out there at the time. Yeah, but also when I said lucky, I meant in the sense of being with somebody that big, but that's also very participative. Like you were part of those early meetings. Yeah, yeah. And, and different designers work in different ways. So sometimes you're not as much part of that and other, other designers are, will welcome you in you know, to be part of all those meetings. So it depends on how people work. Different films require different approaches and different personalities have different ways of working. When I come and visit you on set and I see what you're doing, I don't see you in meetings. I don't see you, you know, in many development stages. But what I see that is quite interesting is I see you talking to all these different teams and the planning that comes in, your beautiful spreadsheets that you colorize and you hang on the wall. And that I, what I see from you as a super art is like how you have to be able to understand carpentry as well as psychology of the, you know, what this says of a character. When I look at it, I'm like, 
it's so scary to me. It's like intimidating. It's, the role is sort of a hub role in a way. I mean, I always tell the people in my department that our, our job isn't to just create beautiful sets. It's actually communication of information. So it's, uh, it's communication of information across the board, whether that's by creating drawings that are clear and precise for the construction department to, you know, to build from, or trying to guide a painter to age a set so that, for instance, the wall behind you at the back, if that was a plaster sheet cast of bricks, then to get that tone and tonality of golden color of bricks, you know, if you specifically want that with the age and everything, guiding the painter to do that, as well as then dealing with the producers and running the budgets. And then at the early stages, talking about planning, you know, how are you going to set this out and employing the people, finding the right people to do the job. It, it is, a, it's, it's definitely multitasking and it, it's a creative job, but it's also, a, it's our project management job at the same time. I look at an actor I like, a director I like, and the amount of dots they have in their career is huge. And often, like, I'm talking to you and you're telling me about Atonement or you're telling me about Sherlock and you're like, I don't know if it's going to work or not because, you know, all the production craziness and what you're involved in. And then you come back and you go, oh, my God, it was amazing. <laughs> it's so funny. You don't necessarily know that what, what it's going to be like. I mean, when we were making Sherlock Holmes, we literally did not know what it was going to be like because it just seemed to expand as we were working on it. It became this much bigger project. You, you, do, you don't know. You, you can read a script and sometimes you think it's the best script in the world and the end result is not great. And then other times you read a script and you go, who the hell's gonna see that? The process that we go through, which is the, the principal photography, we're just, a, we're, that creates the, the general work for the editor and the editing process and another thing altogether. So, and the, and the post-production work and everything else. So the, we're only a small cog in a much bigger creative process. So all, the, all of that has to be work along the way for it to become really good. We can only do the best job we can do in our part of the, and before us, there's the writing and the producing, and the, you know, so that we're just one stage of it. We go from Sherlock Holmes with Guy Ritchie. You're not yet there, but you're about to get into like another, yet another scale of things after Anna Karenina. How does one start at that scale? Like, how did you go into Walt Disney? Well, the Disney project, I mean, again, it's a, a little bit of luck. I mean, the, I was one of two people up to interview for Alice Through the Looking Glass because they needed, they had a designer coming in from New Zealand who didn't, hadn't worked here before, needed somebody. And I happened to be free at the time. They were taking punts on people they didn't know because often producers will go with so-and-so because we know him or we know, you know, that's sort of how it works sometimes. Or they'll propose people that they know because they know that they can work well with them, that they, they've got a track record. I didn't have a track record with these guys. Guys, and they were actually very upfront with me in the interview. They said, we don't know you. We know this guy who's again up against you, but you know, we've heard good things, whatever. And I actually thought that was very refreshing for them to interview me like that because I thought, fair enough, they're telling me like it is. And in fact, I don't think I did get chosen. I think the other guy got it, but then he took another <laughs> job. But, but you know, sometimes that's just how it happens. And then I got into that job and it was a very complex job. And I think the producers ended up appreciating the work I did on that. But then again, it's just the way things happen because then the next job was, I was finishing Alice 
And even before I'd finished Alice, Sarah Greenwood had got Beauty and the Beast and was doing development work on that. So she asked me to supervise that immediately after Alice. So I was going to be going to finishing Alice and going from one day for Alice onto, onto Beauty and the Beast. And then it turned out that the producers of Alice ended up coming onto Beauty and the Beast. So I did two films back to back, the same production team. And they do a lot of work for Disney. So, and, and the thing there is because they're such big films, you get producers coming over from LA you get on well with them and then they start recommending me for jobs as well. So I was getting calls from other people saying, oh, so-and-so's recommended you from Disney. And it's just how it works, you know. This event is organised by N17 Creative Callings, a project sponsored by the Mayor of London and the European Social Fund to support creative businesses and freelancers based in Tottenham. To find out more, visit collageworks.org. You mentioned Alice and uh, Beauty. So that's when you go blue. Like everything becomes blue screen in that world. Like you are working and it's all about managing budgets for blue paint. Well, well, no, Alice, Alice was interesting because the first Alice in Wonderland was practically all green, apart from the location work. Green in that case. And then Disney decided that for whatever reason, and I think it was because of that, the look of that film was very strong, but it was a little bit in your face digital, I think. And so they felt they wanted to do a little bit more for real filming. So the, the Alice with the Looking Glass was sort of half real, half digital. So we built a lot more than we were originally expecting. In fact, in fact, to the outset, we were going to be building a lot more of the initial the sets where they were in even in the blue screen space it was just going to but actually the, the blue ended up creeping in if you know what i mean the budget had to be squeezed down so they, they pushed the the money onto the visual effects side of things i remember going into that project thinking it would be really interesting to see how a primarily or a majority no well not majority it's half and half but a, a film with that amount of blue screen was going to be i thought it would be perversely interesting turned out it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> It's quite, it gets quite technically dull in a way when you're dealing with just pure blue spaces, albeit that you've designed the spaces that they're supposed to be in. in that, was, that was what I was going to ask. Is when we see Sherlock, you're involved in the bridge and then there was a blue room you know, under the top of Tower Bridge. You are as involved in the look of the rest of the bridge as was what is there as what is CGI. I mean, you're supervising the teams, of course, but... Yeah, I mean, okay, so it's a bit of a bone of contention because often we call, like if we're on a set and you've got a street, say, and down the end of the street you've got a blue screen and that's supposed to be Baker Street, say, on Sherlock Holmes and it's going to extend down. And take that as an example. What we did there was for the extension of the set, we got them to hire in a location scout to go around and photograph every existing Victorian era building in London that, you know, of certain scale and size and photograph them well identify them first put together a, a library of the buildings and Sarah literally picked out which buildings were going to be beside each other on that street and this is like way down 500 feet away the um, visual effects department went out photographed those buildings to the, whatever they needed from them from them um, as photo maps and then literally just Put it all together so in that case we completely controlled the street that was like 500 feet away further down on other shows sometimes it's you give them some references and say well the street's sort of like that go out go for it because it's way over there so it doesn't really matter as long as it's something back there but more and more designers production designers are trying to have more and more control over what that is and I'm currently on Little Mermaid. I can say that there's been a lot of discussion with John Meyer from the outset with visual effects because 
with the under the sea environment, you know, they're creating everything. This is how it's going to be. I mean, so this, and, but we're going for a very real, real look. And so we're, John is very much leading the look of the environments in, in that case, you know, oh. although we're not, and we're doing it from, through concept art and, and some models of initial, you know, immediate surroundings and physical models, as well as digital models. We're actually taking on a little bit more of the digital work on this job than we do normally, or have done in the past, put it that way. But it, it sort of depends on the designer and the relationship the designer with the visual effects department, and every job is different. Alice was, was a case in point because they hired a, quite a strong visual effects team because that environment was going to be so big. It, but in some way, you know, there, there was a certain amount of wrestling between the departments, put it that way. It, it sort of depends on the job. Your job has changed from a very physical, you know, like you were basically not that different from an interior decorator in the beginning. Like it was, it was basically dressing up and choosing and selecting what it was. And now I go to your studio and you've got 3D printed models. Yeah. <laughs> with, you know, you've got all this amazing technology that you have to use in the process. And your pipeline from the first moment is brutal in the amount of technology you have to use and what you do. Now it's very natural to you, but I, I'm... You know, I'm curious how that felt when it started to happen everywhere. Well, yeah, it's funny. I mean, the digital printers are now a basic thing, practically, in, in the art form. That's only in the last few years. but um, And they are very useful, particularly if, if a film requires model making to, to a precise degree, which, you know, often is the case. But it is funny how quickly you get used to the technology comes in and, and suddenly, oh, yeah, you're on the next job. So suddenly you've got three printers and then the next up you've got six printers. <laughs> I guess you get used to the technology quite quickly. Well, I mean, you have the advantage as well that your background is engineering. And you're yeah, not like I learned Photoshop 1.1, I think, back in the day. <laughs> and then I've never used it since. But I can tell people how, you know, what I want exactly. to get from it. If, they, if somebody's Photoshop, I mean, not that we do a whole lot of Photoshop, but if I can guide people. I have enough understanding to be able to tell people what I want from it. Well, I have this discussion with so many old farts, like our friends, where they're like, why do I have to learn AutoCAD? And I'm like, because everybody that works for you is basically working on AutoCAD. You need to know the basics or you sound like a knob. You had it already before, because this was something I was trying to lead you towards. Is when you look back at your career in the beginning, is it easy to see things you could have done differently or it's just part of the learning? Well, unfortunately, uh, Chima, you and I are both too old to even think <laughs> back that far because... Frankly, I don't even know how we worked without the internet. And we did. I mean, I'd, I don't even know how, how we did it back then. I don't know how we did it without mobile phones because there were productions that we did without mobile phones. So it's hard to remember what it was and what the communication was like. Color copiers were, I remember that was a big move forward. You know? <laughs> it's hard to, I can't quite remember how we did it. And I, all my colleagues will say the same thing. It's like, how do we do anything for the internet? I don't know, I don't know how we did it. Everything was a little bit different. Everything wasn't as immediate. And I think you had to, like everything else, you had to plan more because you couldn't just suddenly change something at the last minute and send everyone an email because, yeah. uh, you know, especially if people were spread around the country. Yeah, yeah. It required a little bit more planning. Then what's interesting coming from 1917, which was a film that by nature of how Sam Mendes wanted to film it, required a huge amount of planning and was all the better for it, I think. I mean, planned to within an inch of his life and, and you know, rehearsed and choreographed and everything because it had to be i often think that contemporary filmmaking has gotten 
really lazy because everyone goes, oh, we can fix it in post. Oh, don't worry about that. We'll sort it out later. Yeah. Whereas if, if you just plan the shots and plan everything from the outset, which Rob Marshall on Little Mermaid and on Mary Poppins Returns comes from musical theatre and he's a choreographer by, and he plans and rehearses everything. Like wants to know, he doesn't want to be surprised on the day with anything. And actually it's hard work with the prep for it, but it makes for a much better production at the end and much smoother filming. Because it means that any problems have been ironed out already and you, or, or if you know something sticky, you can, you can iron it out, you, know, you can have those conversations in advance and at least get it to a, a decent point that if they do need to sort it out later, you've, you've tried everything else in the first place. But what do you feel about working in other countries? Does the industry impose when you go to work in Eastern Europe? Is it easy to find your way? Because, or do you have to adapt? Oh, yeah. Okay, good, good question. Uh, so, yeah, everyone works in different ways. That's my personal view on it is when you go to another country, there's no point trying to get everyone there to work in your way because they're working because that's like trying to teach an old dog new tricks. It's just, you sort of have to adapt. Now, I've been in situations where designers have come into this country and tried to make that happen. And it just, it, it, it gets very eggy very quickly. But you do get some bizarre scenarios like the Babelsberg Studios in Berlin, where we made Hannah, where we didn't really make Hannah at the studios. We did, we shot some sets there, but mostly it was on location. But Babelsberg had a stake in the production and sorted out some of the finances. We were sort of stuck. We had to use their in-house, in-studio construction departments. And I'd done my due diligence before going out to Berlin. To, I spoke to people who'd worked in Berlin before and said, you know, what's it like? How, how the, what's, the, what's the construction like there? What's the, what the art director's like? And people said, well, Berlin's great, but if you any more than three international films, then you're going to be getting the Z list. We were the fifth, <laughs> we were the fifth international film there at the time. <laughs> So we really struggled. And, they, and, and somebody else said to me, whatever you do, don't use Babelsberg construction. And we had to use Babelsberg construction. So being an old Eastern European studio, they had hangovers from the old East Germany about process that was just made no sense whatsoever. And you go like, like beyond just, it didn't make any sense. It was a waste of material and resources and time. And you go, but why have you done that? And I said, well, we all, this is what we always do. And you just go, <laughs> but... You know, but it, and you, you couldn't get them to change it. It was just, and then you, I, I've, I haven't worked in, in Prague, but for instance, there they build, they don't use scaffolding like we do to support the sets and stuff. They build everything out of wood and they, they use chainsaws and they, you know, and they're, but they're very skilled at it and very adept at it. And they just, you have to get used to their way of working, you know. So it is funny. And it's also from a construction perspective, but how they organize their departments. Like America, it always seems like there's, five more people than you need to do one job, you know, which is, I think, why they like coming over here because we're nimble. We, we do it with fewer people. In your department, I don't know how, how much you know of the young people that are coming in or the junior people into the art department. Is it like they have to have this specific set of skills around 3D printing or is it more like a general knowledge and they start to learn on the job? Are people coming in very prepared or what? I think, that, I think what we're finding is people are coming in quite, uh, quite highly skilled now, whereas particularly on the computer work. I mean, again, well, this goes back to me learning Photoshop 1.1. <laughs> But, you know, the, they do seem to be coming in quite educated in terms of their use of software and stuff like that. But that's, that, they'd be the ones coming through a, an education program that you know like with a film course or whatever that's not to say everybody comes in from that route only 
but yeah. but certainly the skill level is, is quite high these days yeah you're not like feeling this old-fashioned oh i wish people knew how to oil paint a little bit better these days nobody knows how to is there a uh, yeah but it's, in, but it's interesting because you know like on um, the current job we did one set where we tried to design it digitally in 3d on the computer and we got a sculptor to do the same thing and we ended up blending the two because the sculptor got, gave us something that the computer wasn't giving us and like on Beauty and the Beast, trying to draw Rococo, you know, swirls on the computer, <laughs> you know, you'd still be there drawing them. Whereas what, when we started drawing them by pencil, I got a lot of people drawing on pencil in that job because we had to. And then very quickly realized that we didn't even have to have to draw them after a while because the sculptors were then so, so keyed into the shapes that we were doing. You'd do an outline shape and then you guide it, you'd art direct it in the workshop. You know, ultimately... We're going into the physical realm with it anyway when you're building a set. So it's just a case of, of you know, do you go start physical? Do you bring it into digital? I mean, it's, it's horses for courses. You use the tools where they're appropriate. One question we all have in, in my world is how do you access? What's to, what should they work? I mean, because they're all ready to make coffee and whatever, but they also want to have something to offer. Is there anything that comes to mind that the skills they should work on most? Well, I, I go back to what I said earlier, which is what I tell the people in my department all the time, is to remember that our main job is communication. Communication is in all its forms. It's, it's how you speak with people, how you convey messaging, and it's how you conduct yourself on emails. It's how you speak on the phone. It's how you draw. It's how you illustrate something. It's, it's everything. And when you realize that, that your job is to communicate, then it's not about drawing pretty pictures or creating pretty sculptures. It's actually about communicating something. And what is it that you're trying to communicate and what's the most efficient way of communicating that so that you're not overdrawing or you're not, you're not highlighting the wrong thing or communication skills across the board are the most important thing. So you're not involved in hiring. Yeah, I am. You are. So when you have a junior person coming in, where do you look for talent or is it recommended mouth to mouth? I'll always like to see what creative work they can do and what their skill set is. But knowing that often at the junior, junior level, they're not going to be necessarily doing much of that. But you do never know on a project when things get busy. If I've seen on a portfolio that somebody's, I thought, well, hey, why don't you get so-and-so to help? Because they, I've seen, I think they might be good at it. And sometimes they're not, and then you can put, move them on to other things. But I will always look at the creative side of their work. But it's going to be how I engage with them and get their energy level as well when I, when I meet them. Because, again, it's about communication. And the assistants are really important in an art department because they're the glue holding it all together for everyone else. And they need to get on with everyone. They need to be facilitate for people. They need to be able to go into the production office and, and sort something out because we're too busy. You know, it's, although it's a junior role, it's actually an important role. You know, when we're working with young people, some very talented young people, and I'm like, yeah, but you need to fit in a team. If you want to work in the film industry, you are going to be the neurotic, despotic director when you're 70, maybe you're going to be. But right now, you need to communicate and work fit with other people. That's the most important skill you have to hone now. Yeah. It is. Right. It is working as part of a team. And it isn't just the art department, it's the whole production is a big team effort. Um, and that's why communication is important, because when you've got that many people working on 
trying to get onto this doing the same thing. You need to be very clear with what you're trying to do, what you're trying to achieve and what new people need to do. Thank you so much, Niall. Uh, it was so inspirational that we had so many questions coming through as you were talking. So we got Catherine about 1917, the cinematography shifted in style and tone. How the specific choices in the art department supported that. And uh, again, on 1917, from Grace, she loved the film and she's asking, would you say that was your most challenging job to date due to the nature of the single shot? Well, all the films, all the films are a challenge. 1917, probably very proud of 1917. And it was very much an art director's film, actually, because it just by nature of, of the problem solving that um, had to be done. And I was involved from a very early stage with that because Dennis Gassner didn't join us until nearer to pre-production starting. And, and we'd already, I'd already been discussing the trenches and how we go about doing all of No Man's Land and the trenches and things like that with the producers months in advance of that. And we'd already been out to see some locations with the location manager and Sam Mendes. So I stood in for Dennis Gassner and that. So I was, I was involved much more than I normally would be from an early stage. The script is everything really. Sam was very clear about what he wanted to get from every stage of that film. Sam had written the film and knew exactly what he wanted. And something that Dennis talked about when he came on, and Dennis and Sam had worked together quite a lot, was was about you know going in and out of spaces. So we're going from like the opening shot of the tree and the open sky and the fields and then getting swallowed down into those trenches and down into the, the first bunker, then back out into the light, in, in and out happening all the time, which adds to the tension and just moves the story along. And I, I thought that was quite an interesting description of the traveling through the story with the environments that we provided. Everything that was in that film was created by us. I mean, so we'd shot on location, but because we were on the move the whole time, characters never went backwards. We were creating a lot of moving wallpaper, effectively. So I remember the, one of the first couple of weeks in Pinewood, I was reading the script and I realized that the only way to try and work out how big these sets were was to walk up and down the corridors with a measuring tape, you know, roller measure and read the script. So, you know, so, okay. and I tried to pretend I was a character. I said, said they jog along. I was actually jogging down the car. And we took note and we did it three or four times for each section. And then we'd take note how long that was. And I had to go to the producer one day. I said, mm, Callum, I think we're digging a mile of trenches. And he was, don't be so effing ridiculous. And then we did. We built just over a mile of trenches. So that was a really fascinating job because it was so hands-on and working with Roger Deakins because a lot of it was the lighting. And you talk about the the nighttime scenes. We built a model of that town. In fact, we sort of just, we did a really quick sketch model of it because from a budget perspective, there's no way we could have built full buildings for the length of the streets that were there. But we looked at all the old photographs of the bombed out cities and all those sort of pinnacles of rubble. And we realized that we could do a lot with rubble and a lot with using sort of leftover walls as flags and things. So we built a, a very quick model that looked great and everyone was happy with how the build up, you know, build up the gradual rubble building up into buildings. Then, But what really helped was we got three LED lights that we attached onto little wires that arced over the streets and we literally turned the lights off in the studio and Roger would go no we need some light there we need and so we actually designed that those sets to the light of the flares that were going to be going over with Roger Deakins and decided what height walls should be where and where they would be so that the shadows would move in a certain way and that was fascinating that was just fantastic and Roger of course with it you know in the burning church and everything 
just that whole thing of just getting the light in the right spaces at the right time. This again, it was all about choreography and timing. And in fact, even on the nights of filming, they, they had a construction group. We, they were doing nights, we were doing days, and we'd have notes for the next day's shoot about where we had to chop out walls because there wasn't enough light. Because you could never predict it from a model exactly. And we'd be knocking down, we'd be cutting off bits and adding another hole in the wall and just so that they'd get light in the right spot, exactly right. I mean, we couldn't shoot when it was sunny either because we needed, for, for the day scenes, it had to be in the, in the uniform light so we could only shoot when it was cloudy. So ironically, the first day of filming, we never filmed anything. The studio went nuts. But they rehearsed, so at least they got everything, you know. So I hope, I hope that sort of answers that quite long question. Hard <laughs> <laughs> five-part question. We have more. We have one, Kate, who is in the audience. She's in her 30s and uh, she would like to know what advice can you give to get a foot in the door? So she's been told to intern, but obviously she can't afford to do this with bills to pay. Are there in paid interns as well? Or how does that work in the industry at the moment? We do have sort of roles for work experience, but, but work experience usually will pay them. We don't, we don't have anyone working for free. I think now even the work experience get paid. It would, it would, they used to be that they didn't get paid, but they would get travel expenses. But now they get paid, but you know, we can only have work experience in for like a week or two weeks. So it's not a huge run of work. It's, it's sort of tricky. It's, it's, it's always the way really for, for people trying to break into the industry, just trying to get out and meet as many people like me and also set decorators and other people who might be employing creative people and just talking to them as much as possible. There's lots of aspects. Like I, I tend to work in feature films, but there's, there's other sides. There's TV. There's a lot of TV work going on. There's commercials and they often need help for short periods. And it, it's just building up. It's trying to build up some experience of work, however you can do that, because it's, it's, that's what's going to show. If you're coming from a completely different background and you're trying to transfer in, trying to show those transferable skills in a way that, that's useful you know, in, the, in the film world, then that always helps. So any experience you can get on to, on whether it's on commercials or pop problems or TV dramas or whatever, will always help. And it also shows willing. It shows that you've, you've been out there trying to research how to do it and, and get out there. I always, I always think anyone I've seen who's, who's been tenacious enough to, to go out and try and get that experience is, is worth punting on. Another question from Evie, who says uh, she has a lot of transferable skills, but she doesn't know how to best send out against someone with experience. She would like to know where to start. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've definitely met people before who come from uh, illustration, visual communication. Again, I'll always look at somebody's portfolio and see what, where their skills set comes from. And I don't think that should stop you from going to see people in art departments because you, you also never know. I mean, they're talking about luck. You know, somebody might on that particular day be in need of have somebody with that particular skill set and say hey that's great we need somebody to come in and help with making some graphic props or you know you just never know so i would just trying to approach as many people as you can but also you think not just our department there's you know prop making is often done in-house now it used to be the graphics props and and props were all you'd farm them out to specific companies but on the bigger films we make everything in-house so they need lots of different types lots of different skill types uh, in the prop department, graphics departments within art departments, 
have different requirements as well to the actual art department, which is a little bit more technical, can CAD and, and technical drawing based as well as computer, you know, computer work and 3D work and stuff like that. But there's still actual manufacturing of props and physical things and that needs doing in other departments. So now with the, you know, the lockdown, approaching people is even more challenging, obviously, because, you know, serendipity and just showing up is less of a so, but maybe emailing companies and sending or offering? Well, it wouldn't be companies. I mean, the, the way to get a K's, there's a K's, um, K's online. It's a directory of all people. Like I'd be listed in there under supervising art directors and they've got a list of all the people who are art directors or set decorators or production design. You know, it's, it's a list of everyone, not just art department, it's across the whole industry. And they, there's usually uh, contact details in there. You can just go for it, really. I mean, I, I get emails all the time from people. I can't always, especially when I'm busy, I can't always respond. But if people send me CVs and examples of work, I always download them and I keep them because we're often at points where I go, okay, I need to get somebody in. I need somebody with some sort of skill of, of you know, illustration or some, you know, on basic illustration not for concepts or anything but i'll always go back and have a look and see who sent me stuff and particularly at the beginning of a job I'll, I'll look back through cvs and see who's approached me most recently and if they're appropriate so i think it's worth contacting as many people you can you know and sending out emails with examples of your work and a little pricey of where you're coming from and what you're hoping to, to achieve there's nothing no harm in doing that to you know, you could do that to 50 people tomorrow if you, if you got a copy of K's. But, you know, and luck favorites a prepared mind. I mean, if you, you know, if you're, if you're keeping your eyes and ears out for potential, you know, and jump at potential leads and, and possibilities and jump at them. But it is tricky. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I know it's tricky, but I think just be tenacious and keep going. Is K's director, is it C-A-S-E? Sorry, K's, K-A-Y-S, K's. K-A-Y-S, okay. We all want to thank Niall uh, so much for this very insightful session, very generous of your time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Creative Callings. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please share it with your friends.